Hmm. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose back for another introduction to Robinson's podcast. This episode is very exciting for me. It was my first uh, threesome episode recording with two phenomenal guests, both uh, brilliant scholars and academics from Columbia University. Justin Clark Doan was a returning guest, and he helped me wrangle in David Albert, who is one of, if not the world's foremost philosopher of physics. So since that is one of my current like little passions, I'm not researching it or studying it, but I, I don't know. I just can't wrap my mind around a lot of the issues that are discussed there, and I'm finding them really thrilling, even to the limited extent that I can understand them without my access to physics proper. So it was great to have David. And if you listen to my episode with Justin Clark Doan, he's also a tremendously smart guy and the authority right now on the intersection between metaethics and the philosophy of math. So this episode was plagued by some audio problems, which was very unfortunate. I've been using this platform called Riverside, which I really like, but we had trouble getting David connected. So we ended up using Skype and there were some issues with microphones and Skype doesn't record into separate tracks. So I couldn't fiddle around with the audio as much as I would like to still the conversation was absolutely great. For most of the second half, I actually sat on the sidelines, really, because uh, Justin and David were having a debate that I didn't really feel like I could contribute to. So I just got to listen, and that was that was really wonderful. Uh, it's not often that I get to be a fly on the wall for conversations like that. But we talked about David's transition from academic physics to academic philosophy of physics, uh, just what the role is or the relationship between physics proper and the philosophy of physics. One issue that I really wanted to get into, since it seems very conceptually graspable, even if you are not a physicist or philosopher of physics, is the debate over absolute versus relative space. So we go into that, uh, which I really got a, a lot out of. And then there were other questions such as how or to what extent physics enables us to really settle problems in the philosophy of physics, like absolute versus relative space. Uh, and then Justin and David talked about how a physicalist like David responds to questions about where logic or ethics or mathematics exist in the physical world. If all you want to admit are physical entities, whether those are uh, fields or more material objects into your ontology. Anyway, I hope you can get past some of the initial audio issues and really take in this conversation. I got a lot out of it, 
when I was in the room, I got even more out of it when I listened to it a second time. I hope to have David on again. I'm sure I'll have Justin on again. And this is a very exciting addition to the Robinsons podcast canon. So let let both of them know if you enjoyed this episode. And I hope you do. brings me to ask David how it is that you started out in physics and then ended up going to philosophy of physics, which I take it is the path followed by the vast minority of physicists. Um, yeah, that's certainly true and was even more true um, um, when I did it. I mean, um, it's mostly because I didn't well, I don't know how to put it. Um, my interest in physics was always, um, uh, you know, was always focused on its foundations. And um, after I got my PhD and I was working in physics departments, I just had, um, I, I began to get into more and more conversations with philosophers um, realized that there was much more interest in contemporary philosophy um, in the sorts of things about physics that interested me than I had previously been aware that there was. And, uh, and it sort of gradually became clear that um, um, that although there was no department in which I was going to feel fully at home, um, um, that, that it was plausible that there were all sorts of ways in which I might feel as at home or maybe more at home at that time in a philosophy department than I would in a, in a physics department. Um, it was also just there was more uh, on a very practical level in the United States, at the you know after I got my PhD, there was basically one physics department in the United States that had a significant investment in sort of research into into the foundations um, of physics. This was the department with which um, Yakira Horonov, the American department with which Yakira Horonov had an association at that time, and it was because of him that there was interest in this kind of work. Was he uh, your doctoral advisor? No, he wasn't my doctoral okay. advisor, but he, um, while I was working on my PhD, um, I got interested in, uh, in the measurement problem uh, in quantum mechanics, um, um, in specifically the problem of what form the collapse of the wave function ought to take in the context of a relativistic quantum theory. And um, I was near, I, I, my PhD was at Rockefeller University um, um, in Manhattan. I was 
nearly kicked out of of the of the PhD program when they found out that I was also interested in working on the measurement problem, which was very very taboo in those days um, in physics departments. So I just have I just knew of Aronov's name. I knew that you know he was sort of the only person I knew of in the world who was doing. Uh, the kind of work in physics that I really thought was interesting. I wrote to him in those days when wrote by snail mail. Um, and we carried on a correspondence with one another for a while that, you know, resulted in us publishing several papers together without ever having met. Um, and when I finished my PhD, he, he, said, look, I can offer you a, a postdoc here and, and it would be great for you to come out and, and we could work together. So that's what I did after, uh, immediately after my PhD. And uh, then I got, a, I got a tenure track job at the University of South Carolina, which was the place he was associated with in, uh, in the United States. And that was sort of, at that time, um, you know, it, it was it was an intellectually great place for me because of all the concentrated interest in this stuff. But it wasn't the right place for me to live, and um, and it looked like so. Like I say, so there were both sort of purely intellectual reasons why I might be more at home in a philosophy department. It was also true that I was clearly going to have more options about where to live uh, if, I, if I thought about jobs in a philosophy department. So for both of those reasons, I did. I got a question for David. Can I ask a question? You have permission. Okay. So, Dave, so David, the way you just told the story made it sound like your philosophical interest in physics or interest in philosophy of physics only arose in graduate school. No, no, that's not right. Okay. Um, so um, what what were you like thinking about philosophically as an undergrad, if not the measurement problem? And what kinds of classes in physics were exciting you enough so that you wanted to keep taking physics? I was I was interested, you know, I was interested in physics from the time I was in junior high school or, or maybe before. Um, my interest in it was of a very philosophical kind. I just wasn't aware. So, you know, I was, um, um, uh, so I got very interested in, in relativity theory when I was in high school. I got very interested in foundational questions of, of space and time. I was, I was reading Kant's first critique when, no. I, when, <laughs> when I was in high school. So I was very aware of my interests being philosophical. Uh -huh. okay? I, I guess if you had asked me in high school what I would have said was that precisely what was thrilling to me about physics and what I would have had in mind here was mostly relativity theory. Um, 
Did you actually enjoy the class, modern physics or whatever it was in your school? In my no, no, this had nothing to do with classes. Um, um, this, this, I'd have to tell you a much longer story about right. about my life. But I mean, <laughs> I was, um, um, I had very antagonistic relationship with educational authorities uh -huh. while while I was in high school. Um, I think this. I, I think this is for a lot of reasons. One was just, you know, the historical period provided a nice opportunity to do that. <laughs> this was this was the '60s. Um, second of all, I was, you know, um, I I was pretty clearly what people now refer to as dyslexic, um, but was referred to at that time as stupid. Okay. <laughs> so so. I was in remedial classes from the time I was a little kid. Um, um, I, I decided that whoever was in charge of schools didn't really understand me and, and I didn't like them. So no, none of this, um, none of this stuff about my interest in physics had anything to do with classes. Um, I was reading books like um, th this book by, uh, I know this is a pseudonym, and I don't think people know who the actual author was, this famous book by D'Abro called uh, The Decline of Mechanism, um, um, uh, which was, which if you haven't heard of it, is just a fantastic hmm. classic. I mean, a wonderful and introduction to modern physics. I was reading Eddington's book, the nature of the physical world. Um, I was reading books like I was reading books like that. I was really interested in relativity theory. All of these people were writing about physics um, in such a way as the, the, the way in which they were excited about physics was that um, that that it offered this possibility if you were clever enough, um, that is clever a la Einstein or something like that, <laughs> that you could take questions that were so deep that they sounded philosophical right. and drag them to a place where empirical experience could have something to say about them, where experiments could have something to say about them. And I found that fantastically exciting. So, mm -hmm. so uh, you know, so physics was this opportunity to think about um, uh, what felt like the deepest questions you could formulate um, about the, the structure of the world. What's interesting to me about your telling is just that you didn't have that sense beat out of you by taking actual physics classes. So, I mean, I, um, I took a little um, bit of physics and I found it right. immensely boring. Yeah, I was, I was... I was extremely well fortified again. I see. But, you know, in high school, I basically had nothing to do with classes. Right, right. And, right. and by the time I, I was in college, I was, I was ready for this, and I was extremely well fortified it. It. against it. And, um, and, you know, it helps to have, like, an upbringing by a Jewish mother who... <laughs> 
<laughs> no matter how stupid they're telling you you are in school, tells you many times every day that you're the smartest little Jewish boy in the whole world. Yeah, and, and, you, and you believe one. that, you know, right. and it's a really good thing. That sounds um, good, yeah. And, and so, no. So I was very well fortified against this. I was very well equipped to to take it as a compliment if if mm. physics professors told me I was an idiot and this wasn't really <laughs> physics and right. and so on and so forth. Um, um, so I was I was okay with that. Right. Um, it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I really um, started thinking seriously about the measurement problem in quantum mechanics and became aware that everything else that was weird and goofy about quantum mechanics could in some sense be diagnosed as a symptom right. of, uh, of, of the measurement problem. And then, then I got interested in stuff that was that that was at that that was the first time that my interests sort of made contact with what was at the time at the forefront of actual ongoing research and so on okay. and that's when i started to collaborate with with aharonov no but i was i was interested in physics from junior high school as a way of being interested in what I would now call philosophical questions, right. um, what, you know, the, 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 what, what felt like the most fundamental sorts of questions you could formulate about the foundation of the world. And I was also aware that people like Einstein were profoundly interested in people like Kant and so on, and, uh, and read Kant as a result of that. So Robinson, am I allowed to ask more questions? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can keep can, going. Can I just ask him questions and ignore you? No, I'm just kidding. No, I, um, I, uh, I just have another question. So this is all interesting. I mean, I, I've known, I knew some of this. We've talked about some of this, but um, so one of the things that's coming through in what you're saying um, that, you know, has interested me in talking to others Um so there's a version of your story that often uh, that that people in the philosophy of math often have, which is that I was interested in philosophy, and there seemed to be certain questions that you could just settle. Right. Yeah. That's where right. I was going to go right. to. Right. And so I got interested in logic. Right. Now, I personally am of the strong view that that's false. Right. Sure. Um, and that that's an illusion that's alluring, but that it, it goes away once you learn enough logic right? Um, and philosophy of logic. Did, right. you, did you have the same experience with physics? So in other words, it, not that the questions aren't interesting. Right. You're as interested as ever, but you gave you gave up on the idea that, oh, so I if I if I go in this route instead of, you know, ordinate. In other words, there's like you can make a clear line between philosophy and settleable philosophy. And and I want to do the settleable philosophy. Do you or do you maintain that thought that there's an important difference there? So I'm not sure what to say. It, it's surely the case that 
deeper experience of these things is sobering in, yeah, in all yeah. sorts of ways. Um, but, um, um, and, you know, and, and it's always the case in this work that, I, I, I don't know what, you know, you, you don't enter into any of this stuff with, with the hope that, that you're going to find, say, a refutation of skepticism right. or, or right. something like that. Now, you know, um, maybe more stuff looks like it comes into that category as, mm -hmm. as you get more sober and, and, and oh, but I don't know what to say. No, it isn't, it isn't my impression of physics after all this time that, oh, you really come to see what's going on and it turns out it's completely at right angles to all these questions that you thought were the deep ones. No, right. I, I, that, that, that's not the way it struck me. It is sobering in all kinds of ways, okay? Yeah. And of course, and of course, the fantasy that there is a, you know, that there's such a thing as, say, a decisive experiment or a, or a decisive piece of evidence, um, um, not only for a physical theory, but sort of for what sounds like a philosophical question, goes away. But um, um, I don't know how to put it. Uh, you know, when one is talking at a very general level here and very vaguely, but but it's a matter of degree okay no i i i you know there's some core sense in which physics still interests me um not because there's a clear line between what's decidable and what's not decidable but there is this kind of thrill on encroaching more deeply on what might have looked undecidable with um with you know by means of scientific work that that i think is really exciting yeah mm -hmm. okay. so it seemed to me well what jumped out at me was that what really awoke your interest was the idea that there were these deep philosophical problems but then empirical science sort of gave you information that you could use to solve them uh, or or to think about them differently i mean i don't want to discount this sobering this sobering experience that justin is is pointing to mm -hmm. but yes um uh, it's giving you a different angle on them it's giving you it's it's changing and and changing in a positive way the kind of grip you have on this question and i was hoping that we could use this idea to go into a particular problem mm -hmm. one that i take it has been discussed for a long time and that's the notion of absolute versus relative space uh -huh. and maybe i'm wrong maybe that isn't as old as i think it is but i i have a feeling it was really discussed and debated before modern physics and i'm wondering one if we could just start off by maybe 
explaining what that problem is and then hearing a bit so about I, where I hope we're, I hope we're thinking about the same problem by modern physics do you mean post post Galilean physics or well or... what I had in mind was post Newton practice yeah okay yeah. so yeah. so I'm not so I'm not really sure what discussions you're thinking about that that predate that by a long time I mean there are certain certainly discussions of that in uh, people in the scientific revolution like Galileo and so on. I, 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 are you thinking of, say, people, ancient people who, who were interested in that? Or, or, and then it may be, maybe that I'm just not aware, it may be that we're talking about a different problem. No, I think we're talking about the same problem, okay. but I am not a philosopher of physics. I just know that I've, I've come across it in the past, and I know that it's something that's been discussed for a long time. So wherever you want to take it is totally I mean, fine with me. I mean, there is a, so stop me, as they say with jokes, you know, stop me if you've heard this. Um, but but uh, um, just to introduce it, there is a, the easiest way to introduce it, I think, is with, with epistemic sorts of considerations. Um, it's a very familiar thing to say to people, look, if while you were sleeping or even while you weren't sleeping, everything got moved over by five feet, okay? The mm -hmm. entire material contents of the world suddenly got moved over by five feet. Um, but nothing about their, uh, uh, nothing about uh, the distances between any two of them got changed, okay? Or everything got rotated by 90 mm -hmm. degrees um, or uh, about a certain point. Um, you wouldn't notice, okay? Right. Um, it wouldn't make any perceptible difference as far as you were concerned to, to the history of the world. Um, and as soon as you notice something like that, there is a, a natural and, uh, and I think sensible tendency to ask, well, if that's the case, um, um, do we have any good reasons for believing that there are even facts um, about, oh. uh, about whether or not the world was moved over by five feet? Um, um, could we formulate our physical theories in a way that that didn't that such that they didn't commit themselves to being any facts like that uh and so on so and the the reason that this problem jumped out to me is that you're able to explain this with such primitive language that anybody could really formulate this problem even before they have physics so it's yeah. something that pre-theoretically people will be thinking about yeah uh if they're smart and curious sure. but then there's totally room for hardcore physics to maybe uh, settle the problem though i wouldn't well there so once you know here's a nice example of the word settling being clearly <laughs> too strong okay? okay but but yeah physics does allow you to have a grip on this so for example newton um um uh you know well Let's say a few more things, and this requires a little more physics. Um, 
uh, don't ask just about things being moved over by five feet, but ask about everything in the world having its velocity changed by five miles per hour um, or something like that. Um, in that case as well, you can give an argument, uh, you know, you can give the same kind of argument that, that you wouldn't notice. Um, um, Newton thought that, um, that to jump from there to the conclusion that you could formulate your physics without this was a mistake um, because he thought that if you adopted, um, so the position that suggests itself here is that the only spatial facts um, um, are facts about distances between material bodies, okay? That's what, that, that's what all the transformations that I've just been describing leave intact. Um, the complete list of distances between, between um, any material body and any other material body in the universe. So what this suggests is attempting to reformulate your physical theories such that the only spatial facts they talk about are facts about distances between bodies, not positions of bodies relative to some background absolute space itself, also not velocities of bodies relative to some absolute background space itself, also not accelerations of bodies relative to absolute background space itself. The story of the world, if you adopt the so-called relationalist position, is the history of interparticle distances, okay? Um, and that's it. Newton thought he had an argument that such a theory, that, that there are all kinds of phenomena that such a theory would be unable to explain. Um, his famous example, is, is, well, Let's take a simpler example. You have two masses at, at op, connected to opposite ends of a spring, okay? And, uh, uh, and at a certain initial moment, you look at the spring and the spring is slightly stretched out, okay? And you ask, what's going to happen to the distance between these masses as time goes on? Uh, from from that snapshot. You can imagine, indeed, in the world, there are three things that could happen. One is, well, there are a bunch of things that can happen. One is the masses can start bobbing um, in and out. Another is that the spring could stay stretched to the exact extent that it's stretched now. The first case would be associated for us with a case where the spring is unrotating with respect to absolute space. Suppose that this spring and these two masses are the only objects in the universe, the only material objects in the universe. Then you can imagine a scenario where the string would start, the spring would start bobbing, the masses would bob in and out towards one another. That would be a case in which, um, in which the apparatus I've just described is unrotating relative to, to the absolute background space. In another case where it's rotating at the appropriate angular velocity, 
relative to the absolute background space. You can imagine the, the spring staying stretched exactly as it is now um, because of what people usually call the centrifugal forces that would be pulling the masses outward in the case where there's rotation going on. Newton notes that these two scenarios don't initially differ um, um, in terms of how the masses are moving relative to one another, okay? That is, suppose initially that the, string, the spring is stretched and the relative velocities of the two masses, you know, the, the, the time derivative of the distance between the two masses is zero, okay? This could happen apparently under two totally different circumstances. One, the, 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 this whole assemblage is unrotating um, with respect to the absolute background space and the, and the masses are just at the apogee of their, of their distance from one another and they're in the process of turning around in the middle of a bobbing motion. Okay, so that so that the time derivative of the distance between them is zero. It could also be that the time derivative of the distance between them is zero because the distance remains constant over finite times because the whole thing is rotating. Okay, mm -hmm. good. Newton says, suppose you let time go on and you keep watching the distances between these two masses and one of those two things happens. What kind of an account could there be of why one of them happened as opposed to the other that didn't allude to the, the motion of this apparatus relative to the absolute background space? That was the idea, okay? Mm -hmm. So a science that tried to countenance only facts about the the distance between the two particles as a function of time would not have an explanation for these different behaviors. Okay, David, did did um did Newton? This is a genuine historical question. Did yeah. Newton go on to say anything about how it was that the background space was causing this this difference? No, it's a um, fundamental law. It's just a basic it's a, it's, a, it's a fundamental law that F equals MA, where A is judged relative to the absolute background space. Right. Okay. okay. Um, um, and this has the status of a fundamental law. Somebody asks you how a fundamental law works, you tell them to go away. Okay. <laughs> um, um, so... Uh, you know, so this started a long debate of of people trying to understand. You know, this this shows why um, it's not going to be trivial to move from this initial observation that you wouldn't know if everything were moved over by five feet. And Newton was certainly aware of that, okay, and understood it to to glibly saying, let's just get rid of this, okay? Um, it's not clear whether we can formulate 
a fundamental physical theory that has anything like the explanatory capacities that we expect of such theories, which is going to be able to do away with all reference to, uh, to this absolute background space. Um, this is, of course, just the beginning of the story. For my money, there are now, um, well, the story gets complicated in all sorts of ways. If you stay within the context of Newtonian physics, I think there are pretty good relationalist accounts you can give um, that have exactly the same explanatory power as, as the absolutist account. When you come to relativity theory, the whole thing, the whole thing gets much more complicated. It's less clear what it is you think you want in the case of, a, of, a, of even a special relativistic theory from a relationalist um, um, rewriting of physics, because interparticle distance is no longer a plausible candidate in the context of relativity. Instantaneous interparticle distance is no longer a reasonable candidate for the basic facts out there, because it's not even the case that different different observers agree on things like instantaneous interparticle distance or on what constitutes a temporal in instant, what events are occurring at the same time, so on and so forth. So this debate gets more complicated in, in the context of relativity theory. Um, I mean, one could go on for a long time um, about this, but that's how that's how the discussion starts insofar as I'm aware. And that's and that gives you a good idea of of what gets the discussion going and what what's thought of as being at stake. So it, it really far from so the development of physics really far from settles this uh, basic problem. Uh, but it does add a lot of for lack of a better word, maybe like texture and nuance to the to the discussion. Hey, I, texture and nuance is a condescending way to put it. Um, <laughs> um, it's um, um, I, I think it's more than that. It it um, um, it it introduces a lot of other considerations. It introduces a lot of other constraints. It introduces a lot of other challenges. You want me to refute skepticism? That's not going to happen. Okay. There's um, a lot of new textures and nuances, Robinson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, lots of them. So many levels. Uh, Justin, did you? I know you wanted to talk about the a priori areas uh, and where they. <laughs> I, was, I was sort of. Uh... Joking. I mean, I would be happy to, but I was sort of. I I, I would actually love to hear. I, yeah. No. I I mean, I, those are yeah. questions that I have as well. So if you wanted to ask that question, uh, okay. or I'm going to start my own podcast, uh, Robinson, okay. and we'll see who gets more viewers. Um, okay. Well, I'd love to participate. <laughs> okay. Um. Well. Yeah. So David. So um. You have taught me a lot. Of physics and philosophy of physics, and I appreciate that. And you're going to have to teach me a lot more. But um, uh, but I'm curious. I for some reason in those discussions, I've never uh, 
I don't know, felt comfortable asking you uh, to spend even more time with me so that I could ask you about. Um, so, I mean, it sort of gets back to your educational interests. So you were reading Kant, who obviously right. was not a philosopher of physics, though, of course, a lot of what he said has to do with physics. I mean, he's right. a philosopher trying to put right. together a worldview. Right. And um, and so evidently you have some interest in just general philosophy, and yet you focused on physics and, you know, the what physics is telling us and how we should understand it and so forth. So I'm wondering how the rest of you're thinking that I assume, you know, however seriously pursued it you, you have about the, the other issues fits into your work on philosophy of physics. Like, do you have a view about, you know, the nature of value or the, or, or the, the nature of pure mathematics or logic or the kinds of things that I don't want to say most philosophers think about because we think about everything, but, you know, I guess is is a little more typical for a philosopher to worry about than the sort of stuff that has more to do with experiments and labs right. and, you know. I mean, and I'm going to quote Justin, though, just to give a little more to oh, okay. make the question a little more pithy. Mm -hmm. um, and he's wondering where math logic modality ethics oh, and yeah, philosophy yeah. fit into the physical world <laughs> i think so, that's one way of putting so it. i you know um <clears throat> um yeah i'm i'm enormously interested in all of these questions um um i'm not sure that i feel very competent to make pronouncements that ought to be of any interest to anybody um, um, on these questions. I guess I have, um, I guess, you know, it's certainly some, a project that interests me in connection with my interest in physics mm -hmm. is to see how far one could, one could maintain a generally physicalist posture um, um, about these questions. So, you know, yeah, yeah go ahead. Well, I mean, so, I mean, so, so, so I, I don't think I, um, I mean, for example, have, yeah. you wanna, you know, you wanna know about say ethics or value right. theory. I'm just gonna give you a knee jerk reaction that yeah. I've got from other people. Well, probably I'm an expressivist you know, mm -hmm. about them uh, uh, or something like that, because because that's a strategy I've heard of um, that, you know, that that seems to um, uh, that seems to be a way of trying to meet the threat that such that such topics superficially pose. To and for the non philosophers, uh, what is that account roughly? Um, um, that uh, that when I say uh, that that you know that locutions like um, uh, cruelty is wrong are not parts of factual <laughs> discourse. Okay, um, um, that they're you know I, I guess the the expressivist understanding is that that these are um these kinds of locutions are parts of attempts to convince people to behave 
in certain ways, not attempts to state facts about uh, uh, about how the world is. That that when you say cruelty is is morally bad, you're doing something like saying cruelty boo, um, right. um, or something like that. So they have far from the status of physical laws or anything. Uh, like well, that. and and they're they're far from the status of facts. Um, um, more more generally than that. Um, um, because, you know, and the temptation to go that way is because it might be hard to imagine what kinds of physical facts they could be. Okay. So, D David, can I pause you on that? Because, um, yeah. so, so this is all, uh, these are all honest questions. I don't have an axe to grind. Uh, I, ha I have not dug in too much to the literature on like physicalism and so forth because i've never when i've opened the the book on it or read the encyclopedia entry the first page already strikes me as not very helpful so here's here's one reason why i i don't find it i'm not totally clear on what the rules are so um so i mean it sounds like the question you're asking is something like um does everything supervene on the physical? Okay. Like that. Okay. Okay. So set aside any. Or we could start with that. Yeah. Okay. Good. So set aside any kinds of worries that to me are legitimate that one might have about notions of supervenience and so forth. Right. Just, I mean, the, the first question would just be even if it, it does, everything supervenes on the physical. Is the fact that everything supervenes on a physical on the physical somehow a physical fact, and what sort of could be at stake in a debate over that? I mean, is that is that just a decision to use how the the word physical? I mean, suppose I say I hereby declare that all supervenience facts are physical facts. I mean, in what sense? Like, it's not like you're going to get those facts from the physicist somehow. It's not like there, uh, an experiment could in any straightforward sense help to resolve debates about that i mean you could imagine someone like I mean, a, just, a, just, about, a, a debate yeah. about i'm not a hundred percent sure i understand there's there's <laughs> certainly what the supervenience rules are for say how how i don't know what how facts about baseball games supervene on physical facts um physics is is going to be expected to shed a lot of light on it'll certainly refute certain theses about supervenience relations yeah but but is the question sort of like are facts about supervenience facts or facts about physical facts also physical facts it's like this the first layer one. is the that first the one yeah the and, first and, one not the second one i think yeah and but. how and how like what's at stake there i mean when people start asking is everything physical i just like okay is that question is the answer to that physical i don't even understand how to decide no no, no but i don't it, let's see it seems like you've shifted the question here your first suggestion about mm -hmm. uh about um you know what what you first said was i take it I take it, um, um, I take it what you mean by f being a physicalist is something in the neighborhood of the claim right. um, 
um, everything supervenes on the physical. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next question was, that claim itself, mm -hmm. does that supervene on the physical? Or, no, that what, what's the question on. about? Yes. No, so, so, so that would, if assuming that's a necessary truth, that would trivially supervene on the on the physical, like any okay. necessary truth. But but then I don't understand the imports of the claim that everything. No, no, no. But wait, physical. I guess I don't. I I guess I don't. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not sure where to start here. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't see it as a necessary truth. That everything super okay. I can imagine worlds in which there are souls, there are um, there are all kinds of other sorts of don't supervene on the physical. It feels like um, the success of the if you you know it feels like one so far. The success of science encourages the following speculation, okay? Um, um, all kinds of things that you, uh, about which you might have thought this wasn't true initially. Psychology, sociology, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, look as if they all might in some principled sense be reducible to physics, okay? Um, that physics might be the complete science of the world in that respect, the complete natural science mm -hmm. of the world. Okay, good. Um, um, there's a huge gap between that and a more <clears throat> philosophically sweeping statement about whether everything is physical. Okay, I don't know. So you talk about ethical facts i might be mm -hmm. willing just to be skeptical that there are ethical facts okay you talk about say mathematical claims um well there might be arguments that those are indispensable to the activity of physics okay you might be more hesitant to uh, uh to be skeptical that there are mathematical facts so it's a complicated business, okay? Mm -hmm. the, the initial, and it's not, um, you're, in, you're, you're jumping immediately to interpreting it as a sort of very sweeping philosophical claim, Justin. Well, it's and, more, and can, to this clarify. Is the claim that I had in mind. Yeah. There are big debates within philosophy of science mm -hmm. about the relationship between the special sciences, sure. the special natural sciences, and physics. Yeah. This is an adamant position about that. Okay. Uh -huh. right. Then there's a question of how far it goes beyond that. Okay. Right. Does that lead you to be skeptical about ethical facts? Probably. Does that lead you to be skeptical about mathematical facts? Gee, I don't know. That's uh, uh, that, that's much more dicey. See, to I, clarify for uh -huh. my my own understanding yeah. you draw the distinction between physics being the complete being a complete science of the world and everything the, being physical the complete natural the com science of the world and yeah. so mathematics not being an exception to that we, you would just say that even if not everything is physical be, 
some there might be non-physical mathematical objects and in that sense physics is still the complete science of the world but not everything is physical that's just one way of i don't know if it requires platonism i i you know it's just one possibility you're, you're is what getting I'm asking. me you're getting me into stuff that's way above my pay grade here um okay. um the I think he gets paid more than me. I, I, t- <laughs> I take it. Um, I, I take it, you know, if you're asking me about mathematics, um, and I guess on these other things too, about ethics, about so on and so forth, I take it insofar as I understand it, I have a position of, you know, that's something like, say, Quine's position. Um, um, he thought he was a physicalist. Um, but he, but he regretted that he had to, uh, that he had to admit, um, um, mathematical truths. I don't know if this includes mathematical entities in a platonic sense, but mathematical truths, um, that he thought were indispensable to, uh, uh, to physics, but, but had to admit them just because of that. I mean, you know, you can take a, you can. There's a much more local example of something like this that I that I feel I understand better. Um, you might have started out identifying some kind of physicalist position or physicalist predilection, let's say, with with a materialist position. Okay, um, all there are are <clears throat> material objects. Okay. And in that respect, a really interesting thing happened in the 19th century, okay? Um, um, throughout the course of the 19th century, there, people started talking more and more about fields, okay? Um, they initially started talking about them to the extent that I know the history um, in a way that didn't take them very ontologically seriously. They talked about them as bookkeeping devices, as another way to calculate the Coulomb uh, attraction or repulsion between gravitating objects or electrically charged objects or something like that. But by the time you get to towards the end of the 19th century, by the time you get to the work of people like Faraday and Maxwell and so on and so forth, it's clear that fields are not gonna subject themselves to be tamed or contained in, in, in that kind of way. They have their own internal dynamics. It turns out that you can get a highly time-dependent, interesting history of wor- histories of worlds that don't have any material objects in them at all. Okay, that are just that are that are you know just represent the actions of fields shoving on each other, and that if you want a good account of how light manages to travel from stars to us, you really need to believe in something like this. So there is a sense in which. I think it's right to say that physics is the science of the motions of material objects, okay? But it can turn out that um, that if you don't want to be unreasonable, if you don't want to be, you know, stubborn or silly, um, you're going to also have to acknowledge by the end of the 19th century 
that a satisfactory theory of the motions of material objects is also going to be a theory that gives equally equally serious ontological status to these non-material, also physical objects called fields. Okay. Then somebody says, so what the hell, what the hell was the meaning of your claim that the whole world is physical? The notion of what it is that's physical keeps changing, so on and so forth. Absolutely right. I got no problem with that. Okay. I know what's going on with physics. Physics is it, it physics does in some way retain a sort of not ontological, I don't know, maybe the right word is epistemic preeminence for material bodies and the motions of material bodies. But you may find that in order to get a fully satisfactory scientific theory of the motions of material bodies, you're going to be forced to talk about other stuff and to talk about it in a way such that if you're not being, you know, just actively and unreasonably pig-headed about it, you're going to have to say you're treating um, uh, as, as, a, as a co-equal part of the ontology with material objects, and that's field, okay? So you find you have to countenance these other things, which you didn't know when you started out, which weren't in your imagination when you started out as associated, you know, uh, 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 that you were ready to think of as physical objects, okay? But, but David, you seem like two very different um, con concerns. I mean, the, the the indispensability type thing is, of course, you know, associated with Quine, who would right. definitely reject any idea of supervenience on the physical as being a interesting or useful way to think about physicalism because that's a modal idea and he doesn't think any of that makes sense and right. meanwhile if you if you go the route of supervenience then you're trivially going to get that you know the the, the 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 moral is physical because the most basic fact about moral facts is that they supervene on you know the the natural facts you can't have two different moral situations unless you vary something else that's that's the one analytic truth about ethics um right i mean this is why it kind of like with with consciousness this is in a way why people have been puzzled by ethics because supervenience is kind of beyond dispute but nobody can give you the bridge laws whereas, right. whereas in the case of you know like psychology it seems like we could get the bridge laws from right. supervenience right so 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 just back to the original thought the original thought is like you know what is physicalism if if it's something you're invested in and and think maybe isn't just a terminological issue? I, I don't see anything much coming out of the supervenience criterion, even though it seems like when you look this up, that's the first thing that you get. And I'm just wondering how you well, get. So when you were when when. Um... So what do I want to say here? Um, um, it was you 
that started us off on supervenience. <laughs> and, and you said, look, I assume you mean something in the neighborhood of a supervenience claim. Right. Um, um, and, you know, I wasn't assuming that a trap was being laid. I well, thought you were just trying to sympathetically. Um, um, come on. Um, so, look, I, you know, um, yes, of course, supervenience is a modal claim. We can we can have all kinds of discussions about modal claims. And of course, you're right. Uh, and of course, you're right about Quine there. Um, that is what what Quine's attitude would would be towards supervenience. Um, I'm coming from um, uh, I'm coming from a very different place here. And maybe um, maybe it would be more accurate. I was allowing you to substitute the word supervenience for this. Although, I mean, whether I'm as scared of the modal claims as, as, as Quine would be, and as I know you are, is another question. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't, I, I don't have a prepared answer. Yeah, yeah. There's something much, there's something much more vague going on here. There is within, uh, let's just start out, although we can expand to farther than that in a minute, within the sciences, there is this imperialist project of physics Okay, which it, within the natural sciences, there is this imperialist physical project. Okay, um, we're going to absorb biology, we're going to absorb chemistry, we're going to absorb biology, we're going to absorb psychology, we're going to absorb sociology, um, um, we're going to absorb history, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, there is this imperialist there are these imperialist aspirations of physics, which lots of people in various parts of philosophy um, um, think they can resist. Okay, and I think their uh, arguments for resisting it are weak. Okay, um, good. Um, you don't want to call this physicalism because it doesn't settle the question, for example, of whether the fact that everything supervenes on the physical is itself a physical fact. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. No, no, no. That, Here's, that's hold, hold on, that's hold on. not the issue. The issue is um, um, the thing that impresses me, okay, is, is, um, the extent to which physics, first of all, can absorb um, the special sciences, okay, or this aspiration of physics to absorb the special sciences, also in the other direction towards philosophical questions. There's a long tradition of thinking, for example, that the idea that, that at the deepest level, the idea that there's an important difference between the past and the future, 
say, vis-a-vis -vis the extent that we can affect the past and future by acting now or something like that, is as good an example as any of something whose explanation you ought to look for in the fundamental metaphysical structure of the world, not in, among its physical laws or something like that. This is another direction in which I think a sort of imperialism of physics has thrillingly extended itself, okay? And this goes back to what I was saying excited me about physics in high school, okay? I, it now strikes me that physics has got us to the point, and in particular, statistical mechanics has got us to the point where it looks silly to think that this is a distinction that the appropriate, you know, which is which it is appropriate to seek out in the fundamental metaphysical structure. Mm -hmm. And there's now a good argument that the appropriate place to seek this out is in is in the mathematical structure of the physical laws mm -hmm. themselves. Okay, so um, there are all kinds of ways in which um, in which physics is extending itself beyond the sort of regions of application which were originally envisioned for it, okay, which indicates something really interesting about the structure of the world, okay? Now, I, I can start waxing eloquent about this, and some smartass is going to say, but what about the claim that everything supervenes on the physical? Is that another <laughs> physical fact or not? And I'm going to be inclined to tell them to go fuck themselves. I, no, I know. I get that. I get, okay. lot. I get this a lot. But, but, but let's be clear about how this conversation started. The conversation yes. started with, with there's yeah. a lot of subjects that philosophers are interested in other than physics, of course, no, and no, you no, too. No, no. no, but which include modality, which right. include logic, which include math, which include ethics. How do you think they fit into the physics? And it doesn't seem to me like if if you mean something like supervenience by physicalism, you can you can very helpfully say, oh, they are all gonna somehow be swallowed no. up by physics. No, 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 no. Physical. So, so let's be a little clearer in some in one sense, and a little unclear in another <laughs> sense. Um, um, the thought, the thought in the way in it, where I'm coming from, okay, yeah. is um, um, is this thought that physics might end up swallowing a lot okay but that's already happened i mean okay. no 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 not if i didn't understand there are plenty well, of this well, is not at all a majority view within philosophy well science. it depends on what you mean by swallowing obviously no one thinks that methodologically everyone should you know do, no, no. do physics to do chemistry or biology but no, no no no, no. Nobody, that... nobody thinks that okay. yeah so so uh, so so I mean, so what what is there to dispute? Is there people dispute the supervenience of those chemical on the on the physical? Um, yeah. um so that you know, people dispute, for example, that well, people people try to dig in in lots of places. People um um 
people might not deny the technical claim of supervenience, okay, but they might deny, as you were saying, not just with ethics, but with biology, with psychology, so on, that there are any kind of bridge laws, that there is any that there's any useful translation. Useful, I see. Right, yeah. that there's any useful, well, not, no, 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 but more than useful. That there's any, you can, you can, it's, it's compatible, I take it, to acknowledge supervenience, to acknowledge the two worlds couldn't be, couldn't be psychologically different without being physically different, okay? And yet to radically deny um, without the word useful, that there's any kind of translation. No, because of... no, it's just going to be a big, that you will at least have a very long disjunctive law that's totally incomprehensible and useless. But there's no way to maintain supervenience and to not to deny I that there's... Uh, so, so, so you'll have to instruct me about that. I'm not sure okay. I get that. Why couldn't it, why couldn't somebody say... Um, um, I grant that any two worlds that are physically identical are also psychologically identical, okay? Mm -hmm. but, um, but you ask them to, you ask them for an algorithm for reading off the, con the psychological content of a world from its physical content. And they deny that there is any finite set of instructions. No finite. I'm not. I'm not. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Even even if the world, even if the physical, even if the physical world, say, contains, even if there are a finite number of physical facts. Uh. Fi fi I, I don't know what it could mean to say there are finitely many facts. Because that I mean, is that is there a finite number of particles. Oh yeah, I, I I mean yeah, that might be. It still might be an infinite. Oh okay. Um, okay. Bridge good. law. Yeah, good, yeah. Good. Good. So that's helpful. Okay. Good. So you don't mean you don't just mean useful. Um, you mean no. I, I well. Okay. Good. 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 Okay. Uh, we're, yeah. we're 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 <laughs> better here. Okay. Good. Um, um, so there's this kind of resistance in various areas of philosophy. Okay, sure. I, I there's see. other there's other kinds of resistance. Resistance that comes from comes from various conceptions of what it is to explain something, or what it is to explain something satisfactorily. Yeah, I, I see. So that. there, so there are people who say physics could predict everything, but it doesn't explain everything. Right. Okay. Um, um, there are all kinds of stances one could take to resist what I'm calling this physical imperialism. Okay, okay but, but I think all these stances are mistaken. Right, right, right. But I think but, all so, these stances are wrong. But yeah. we started with the idea that physicalism is something like the idea of everything supervenes on the physical, and no, that you be. started with that. Idea. I started it, and that okay. can't be what that can't be an interesting version of physicalism. Are we agreed on that? Uh, for reasons other than the than the single one that you've raised so far, which is no, that I, I raised. Know, I don't know how two. to wait. I don't know how to say what. I don't know how to say whether the fact of supervenience is itself a physical fact. No, no, no. Is the, that the, the worry? No. The, the, well, we just... <laughs> oh, we hold on one second. I, okay. As I warned you, I'd have to let my... Yeah, door. yeah. Hold on. Yeah.
How's the coffee, Justin? I have no coffee. I thought I had coffee. I'm all out. So I'm. This Are is you a, drinking chocolate milk? No, this is a. <laughs> I'm not above that, but no, it's a smoothie. Um, no, Sorry. no. The, the, the yeah. current the current point there's more there's was multiple points. You don't have to <laughs> and use the thing about is supervenience. Okay. Uh, so no, what do so you the, want from what the fuck uh, do you want from my? So life? the most recent point <laughs> was that supervenience is too cheap because all these disputes are not about whether the chemical or the biological supervenes on the physical. They're about whether you can explain the biological physically okay, or good. about whether the good, bridge good, laws are good. It's okay. Good, so that's good, not good. the issue. That, so so you're, you're absolutely right. Supervenience is not the issue. Okay. Right? So whatever it is, it's um, not that. Okay. The, the the issue is whether whether or not in some sense, um, and there are various versions of this question, whether or not in some appropriate sense, and this includes explanation, this includes translation, you know, bridge laws, so on and so forth, whether or not in some, in some substantive serious sense, not useful because nobody claims, nobody is making the methodological claim. But in some more substantive and serious sense, physics is the complete science of the world, or more narrowly, the complete science of, of nature, or, or I don't know what, okay? Um, the complete natural science of the world, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, but so the original, the, but the original question, though, is how you take things like logic, math, yeah. ethics. And, and the answer in. is... So like I say, so, uh, you know, let's take them one at a time. Okay. I think this does incline me to being skeptical, you know, thinking that, say, ethical discourse and valuable and value discourse is probably logically, uh, uh, factually defective. So why would it do that, though? Because, because... Because your thought is that supervenience isn't enough. I want bridge laws, and that's the problem with ethics, just like consciousness. Um, let's see. I don't. I. I. Uh, I'm a little. I'm. Um, I'm a little confused. Let's go to the ethical case. Yeah. Um. Um. You say. Um. Uh. You say. Look. Uh. Um, cruelty is bad no 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 but that, that's what i don't understand you say um the ethical status i i mean what is it exactly that you want to say that that given that there couldn't be two worlds that are physically identical whose correct ethical evaluations or who, whose correct ethical value is different yeah, that's like the one thing everyone agrees to, basically. Good, I agree, but I don't. But 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 that's not the question. The question is whether I mean you can make up an ethical value. Okay, you can right. make up an right. algorithm for taking a physical world and assigning right. it an ethical value. I would have thought the interesting metaethical question is whether there's an argument that one of those algorithms as opposed to another is correct well what is that actually correct so this is the million dollar question it seems to me about any high level properties yeah. any supervenient properties like what does that mean 
So, so there's two kind of general views about properties. At a yeah. metaphysical level, one of them is they're cheap. They're just the mirrors of predicates. And if you've got supervenient properties, then there's in some sense nothing over and above. And then there's the other, there's the kind of Quinean nominalist view that there aren't really any properties, and it's just a, a matter of predicates being satisfied. No, wait, 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 wait. I asked you a question just now in regular yeah. guy English. Yeah, and in regular guy English, no, the, the answer no, no, no. is I'm, wait, I'm, wait, yeah. wait. I'm asking a very <laughs> I'm asking a very simple question. Right. Somebody says, of course, given any algorithm right. that takes me from a physical situation to to uh, to you know whose whose domain is something like good or bad. Yeah. Okay, right. Uh, yeah. You give me such an algorithm, I'll be able to evaluate any physical situation as good or bad, and right. and that will of course mean that ethical valuation in that sense supervenes right. uh, the physical okay but but the but now the question i'm coming to you with is mm -hmm. i don't see what it is in the um um i i don't see what it is except if you take a union attitude that is you just consult what people think or something like that i don't understand what it is, um, what what it could be about any of the natural sciences mm -hmm. that identifies one of these algorithms as the right one. No, the, well, the view would so so. First of all, I think the key question is what that is, does it mean that to is, say that that is. I take it what people are asking when they ask whether ethical discourse is factual is precisely. Is there a fact about which one of these algorithms is the right one? Yeah, but, but which but, ones are wrong? That's what everyone would like to be asking. But what does that mean? You're using the words right and wrong. So here's two possibilities. You're asking. No, 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 no. no. Excuse me. Okay. I'm not using the words right and wrong. In You're using accident. true and false. Yeah. In true and false. Yeah. Okay. But 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 in that case, I mean, you know, our word good has some extension. And if you apply it to things in the extension, it's true. And if you don't, then then it's false. No, 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 I mean, that's, no, no. that's fine. No, that's fine. <laughs> we could examine how we use the word. Right. That's not the point. Yeah. Is it, 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 is it you know, ethics becomes interesting. I take it. I agree with The this. moment that you say that it's conceivable that the way everybody is using this word is mistaken. But that can't be false. So here's the issue. What you're saying, I think, is that which is right, grew or blue? And the answer is you can have languages that are totally true about both. And the question between them is actually very hard to... I mean, here's one view. Uh, the sense of right there is not... It's a, just a practical decision based on sort of our policy desires. And that would be a, one view about ethics, but that would be particularly a bummer in the case of ethics because ethics is supposed to tell us what to do. Right. So, 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 so it's. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay. Yeah. You mean, you mean, so we're in, um, 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 
So we're now in the domain of the sort of Putnam argument uh, uh, about uh, not about determinacy know, of by, right. by charity by no okay no no no. no, no. Okay. What, what I'm saying is um, so okay. So I took you to be saying, isn't the interesting ethical question not what my concept of like courage and goodness happens to have packed into it, but right. what concepts to use? I mean, like, which are right. the right concepts? Right. And the question is, what do you mean by that? And it can't be, I mean, the true concepts. First of all, concepts can't be true. And second of all, I might be totally, it might be totally true out of my mouth that like, you know, people deserve retribution oh, wait, if they do no, something wait, bad. Wait, I don't understand. Uh, of course, concepts can't be true, but it can be true that, that this is the concept of good. And, and I, I, I don't understand. That so let's suppose that this is the concept of good. Okay, let me put it this way. Yeah, we could we could raise what I take to be your real question, even under the assumption that we are one hundred percent reliable about what we ought to do and what's good and so forth. Suppose that we're completely reliable, so there's no worry about truth or falsity. Like right. God whispers in our ear, "You got it exactly right." Right. You know? Right. Okay. Isn't the following a live question? whether to use the concepts we're actually using, whether to ask questions in a different language, whether to hold people respons responsible instead of responsible. That's not a question that you can then be like, which, who, who got it right in the sense of truth? I thought that it was supposed to be the interesting, peculiar feature yes. of ethical claims. Okay, that unlike any other kind of factual claim, right, merely knowing the truth value of an ethical claim, right, gives you immediately gives you reasons to act in one way, right? But it doesn't give you reasons. You can you can run that with all the all the facts, you know. So, this sounds yeah. like I, I, I so so. So just have pity on me here. Okay, I'm trying. And and <laughs> and diagnose for me why this mm -hmm. sounds to me. Uh, this is not a way of of no, uh, no, no. saying I don't want to consider it. I just want yeah. to know where. I just want to know what kind of where I am in the conversation. Right, right. This is sounding like a sort of indeterminacy of reference. It's, yeah, it's not. It's you not me. It's not right. So can you can you can you diagnose why I feel that way and get me out of that problem? Yeah, because one could easily take these different candidates that I'm talking about as different candidates for the actual semantic value of your words. I'm saying they're not. They're just alternative properties that we could have latched onto that we by assumption did not latch onto. But the point is, if you want there to be some live question as to whether we're using the right concepts, it's enough that there are such concepts that we could have used. It doesn't matter whether they might be what we actually are using, and there's no fact of the matter about what we're really using. So, I mean, suppose... So let me back up. I, I don't yes. think... I... I, I, I um, uh... I'm not imagining that this is going to disrupt anything you're saying. Yeah, yeah. No, I no. want more of an explanation. Sure. Um, 
we're looking for right um I, I, so i guess i see how the conversation is going to go so so um i'm saying look when we're when we're seeking after the right ethical concepts we're seeking after those things such that merely knowing whether the concept applies to them or not gives reasons for action okay and you're going to say right but there are going to be other concepts such that merely knowing whether the concept applies to something or not is going to give schmeasons for correct um and and somebody says I, i'm just asking you to walk me through something. yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um somebody says didn't you just change the subject yes absolutely i, I wanted reasons for action right but but um, your original impulse was that maybe that I th thought this was your this was your point, and this struck me as completely true. Mm -hmm. That that here's a very boring way to do ethics, and by boring, I also mean misguided. Mm -hmm. Like it, this is a great way to stay in stupidity about important issues. Right. Let's do conceptual surgery and figure out what we've inherited, and then let's let's call those things prescriptions. Right. The, the the right thing to do is to critically evaluate our concepts as we critically evaluate everything. Right. Now, some of those concepts will be concepts of a reason. That's just another normative term like good or bad oh. or right or wrong. Right. Or right. So we don't want to say here's here's the marker of the th of the, of the one true standard, whether I have a reason. Because reason is uh, is under consideration as well. It's whether to care about what you have reason to do as opposed right. to reason. Right, right. So the big picture, this is kind of a different issue. I didn't mean to get into this. But the big picture was I thought you were saying that ethics, you're inclined to be an anti-realist about ethics because of your, of your physicalist sympathies. And right. I was responding, but wait, ethics is just going to be cheap on the sort of supervenience conception. And then you say, well, um, the, the supervenience conception isn't really involved enough. What we want is something like interesting explanatory connections between the subvenient and the supervenient. No, 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 no. That okay. was about the natural sciences. Now, I'm not concerned about explanation here. here okay. here's, here's how the conversation went, okay. as I understood it. I mean, <laughs> this is, I, I can't imagine what listeners to this podcast this is not going to bore to death it's I'm, free it's free people. <laughs> um um now this is how i understood how the conversation yeah. of course um um given any spelling out of of what's right and what's wrong right um the moral value of any physics you know of of any situation is going to supervene on the on the positions and velocities of the elementary part mm -hmm. okay sure okay right but but what i said at that point was yeah yeah that's not something i doubted okay mm -hmm. What I couldn't understand was sort of 
where the normativity comes from in the first place. Okay. What do you mean that by is, that? What so here's, what I, here's what oh, I meant. Okay. okay. Um, what I meant was what I didn't see how physics was, of course I saw how physics was going to decide for you, how physical mm -hmm. language was going to decide for you, given an algorithm of moral evaluation, right. not the moral value of any particular situation. Sure. What I didn't understand was how physics was going to decide what algorithm to use. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and then you said, um, and then, and then, and that's the moment in the conversation when you, when it sounded like you were changing the subject. You said yeah, I was yeah. Here's what I here's here's what I was saying in those terms. Yeah. All the different algorithms are out there. I mean, as a metaphysical matter, there's no nothing to dispute. You yeah. can have a natural a quest a debate about natural language semantics about which of them we happen to be talking about when we ask which one is the right one. Like, what notion of right are we picking out? But that doesn't make much sense because you can ask that about that algorithm. So, so my own view is that you just got, as a metaphysical level, this is all cheap. You've got all the different algorithms. They're all there. You can then ask what could only be a non-factual question about which to use. And if right. you think that is, if you think that is the kind of like really important normative question, then I think you're right that it's a non-factual question, but not to do not for any reason to do with physicalism, but because of this fact that we can always evaluate our values, like Nietzsche says, you know? Um, sure. Um, I, uh, that is, it's certainly not as if I thought that you needed to do any physics <laughs> to see that this was a non-factual question. I see. And you don't think it has anything to do with physicalism? Like, physicalism could and be false. No. Could... Yeah, physicalism could be I false. See. Okay. still be clear that this is a non-factual question. I see. Okay, well, okay, then, then... And you're right, and you're right, looking back on the conversation, that... Um, um, that I wasn't speaking from a place that was clear about that. Right. No, but it's, uh, it's factually, it's factual. Yeah. Yes. Sure. I guess <laughs> that is, I can't imagine a different kind of physics that would, um, um, yeah, I can't imagine a different kind of physics that would change this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, because you could have a physics where one of the laws... I mean, I mean, that that is this... No, but I mean... Yeah. That is the intuition that's operating here on my yes. part. It's some yeah. kind of a very naive, Jungian intuition about not being able to get an ought from an is. Right, but it's stronger than that, because, of course, you could have ought facts. So what you're really saying is you not getting sort of deliberation or action from facts even if they're normative. Um, like another way you might put it is there's a gap, you know, Hume says there's a gap between, you know, what, you know, how the world is and how it ought to be. And there's also a gap given the fact that there's going to be all of these different algorithms 
between and I speak a language and so I'll be using one of them right about how it ought to be and what to do fair enough <laughs> I, I, I I I guess although aren't we going to be able to continue to play that game no I don't think so. Well, by talking, so just correct me by talking about schmooing as opposed to doing. No, because because you can. So I think the way to to break the stalemate is yeah. so so you've got what what you ought to do and what you schmock to do or something. Right. Right. Now, what's that remaining question? It's not what you like ought triple star do or something in some other sense because you'll just be able to go on forever. Right. It's it's what to do where the answer to that question is something like an imperative. Do what you ought, um, and so, or do what you schmott. In other words, it's not something that you can then. Um, it's not some. It's not another fact that you can then just tweak the property of. So help me with this again. Somebody yeah. says, um, 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 somebody, somebody like you says. <laughs> The question is not what, um, I, I mean, tell me if I'm quoting you correctly here. Yeah. Um, we start getting into what we ought to do. Um, um, that way lies madness because somebody could change the subject to what we schmort to do or something like that. The question is what to do. Yeah, the question is what to do, which cannot be a factual question, because if it were, I could always just reevaluate it against some alternative that I could be using. Couldn't I have done other... that earlier with what I ought to do? What do you mean? Could, couldn't I have made exactly that move earlier? That is, that is, somebody might hear the question, what to do? Right. As, syno as almost synonymous with the question, oh, what sure. ought to do? Yeah, so here's, here's something that's true. If, if what I ought to do is synonymous with what to do and what to do is the primitive thing that this right. is being reduced to rather right. than the other direction, okay, good, then good. sure, you can dress up any imperative okay, fine. a declarative okay, sentence good. like giver. Good, good, yeah. good. So, okay, good. So The key, the so key I, point is that facts aren't settling anything of interest. Good, good, yeah. good. Um, um, Good. Or another way to put it is, is um, um, there aren't any facts such that merely knowing them, okay, tells me what to do. Well, that's tricky. What do you mean? I mean, it does tell you. You ought to, you know, the ought facts. No, no, no. I didn't use the word ought. I was well, trying to speak yeah. your language. If you right, it tells if, if me you, what to do. Yeah, like settles deliberation or right, something right, like that. Yeah, right. yeah, okay, right. Good. I agree. Yes, good, good, good. And I agree with you <laughs> that it's not important to this argument whether these facts are physical or something. Right. Right. Okay. Right? Okay. It's okay. just that this guy, um, you know, it's just that this this old um, um, meta ethical slogan. Right. Um, about these facts being queer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 what you really mean is there aren't facts like that. The, 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 there, there could not, that you couldn't, couldn't construct such right. a fact. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So we agree. And there was nothing important about these facts being physical. 
Let's, I, okay, so let's turn to like yeah. <laughs> Robinson. Let's turn to logic, modality, and math. What's so but was, but, but uh, <laughs> just hold on one second. Yeah, I, as I did in my own defense, inform everybody a long time ago. I'm going to have to leave at five. Right. Okay. Is, oh yeah. Whoops. Okay. All right. So Robinson, I'll turn. No, but you can. But go. You know, with that in mind. Go on. And you can talk about me after I'm gone. You know? Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. No, this this is fine. I mean, um, one day, maybe David and I will do a, a solo one specifically <laughs> on the things that Justin finds uninteresting. But no, I I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoy listening to this. I didn't have you uh, both on so that I could monopolize the conversation. I, I'm enjoying I'm I'm the student here. I'm enjoying learning from both of you. But no, of of the other few disciplines that Justin mentioned, the one I'm most curious about is logic. So if you had any thoughts on where I mean, logic I fits into I all don't, of this, I I think no. I'm just a tourist here. Okay, I think that that um um. From what I know of Justin's position, um, let's see. That is, I was about to say something like, first of all, I'm a tourist here. It seems like the question of the status of logic um, um, and where logic fits into the world or fits into our relationship to the world or something like that is, you know, is in some sense, first philosophy itself. Okay. It's a really, really deep question. I have the feeling that, um, um, Justin is much more comfortably pluralist about it than that and maybe there's not such a deep question there or there's not a particularly deeper question than there is anywhere else um or something like that but but these are two different ways of saying i feel totally unqualified to uh to say anything to say anything interesting about that i have the intuition that i'll be less comfortable with being pluralist about that than than Justin is, but that's just a that's just an initial intuition, and and I don't know what, and um, and something I've absorbed from there being a long history of people thinking this is a deep question, um, but this is to say nothing whatsoever. <laughs> I don't know if Justin, you had a follow up to that or. <laughs> well, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, yeah, it's. It's true that I. I, I mean, yeah, I, I have views that probably are nuts about this. I mean, I, I, I basically think logic was one big mistake, <laughs> which uh, is not the, not not the right title of your paper if you want to. Um, not get uh, yeah say a little bit more about what that means so yes, um so so yeah okay here's a few things you have five um, minutes and 25 seconds okay <laughs> that's right okay one thing is that 
um, setting aside issues about pluralism, logic is just way too weak in the sense that we have defined it to to get do anything. I mean, why should I care about what follows from what as what 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 has to be the case if something else is the case as a matter of form alone, and, uh, as as a matter of all logically possible worlds too. I mean, here let me give you just a concrete example to make the point. Suppose somebody tells me Joe's a bachelor. You know, here's something I should think. He's unmarried. That's not logically valid in, in first order logic because the predicates are different. But, but you know, obviously that's an inference I should make. Now, even classical first order logic, if we set aside all issues about pluralism, which I think just raises the question of even what could possibly be at stake here, but we set aside all questions about pluralism, I mean, that's such an impoverished system to go about reasoning in the world in, even in the realm of something like pure mathematics. That's why no mathematician would even begin to know how to write out their proof in first order logic. And the reason why they don't like it when someone actually does write it out in first order logic and part of the proof is something that only a computer can understand, because that's not how we think even in domains that seem to be like maximally logical. So. Logic. Wait, I don't know. But wait, yeah. I'm really confused. Um, um, who who are you associating with the position that that's the only way we make inferences, or that that's the only tool with which we make inference? I'm not thinking anyone has that view. What I'm asking is what what is like. Like, suppose that I were to lay down some rules and, and here's here's some of the rules, like from anything infer that there have been dogs. And um, and uh, also, you know, if snow is white, then snow is white. And, you know, um, a few other like. Sure, of course, th those are those are reasonable things to think, but it, but but we evaluate arguments for validity. And we call an argument bad if it could happen as a matter of logical possibility alone, thinking only about the forms of the sentences involved, that the premises are true and the conclusions. I don't I don't know which that's certainly not what we do in science. Well, we okay. argue we evaluate arguments, you know, in in terms of some much right. Uh, broader criterion of reasonable but it's an induct that's validity an validity effect. is validity is of course a necessary condition right of reasonableness well, but it doesn't come anywhere close to exhausting no 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 but criterion that, I, I don't get it but that's what i was so, just saying it's not a necessary condition for for reasonableness it's it's way too strong for a necessary condition for reason wait now I'm all confused. A minute ago, you literally said it was way too weak, okay? Oh. Because we were using it, be, because, and, and the implication was of saying it's way too weak that, uh, uh, that you can hardly get anything from it, okay? You can't even get that a bachelor is unmarried from it, okay? Right. Yeah. Um, um, and I said, yeah, that's absolutely right. We have many more resources for evaluating arguments than raising the question of whether right. they're strictly logically valid. Right. Okay. Now, I, 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 I tend to think that, that a failure, uh, let's see, 
No, yeah. but that argument is invalid. That's the point. So it can't be that a failure of validity is shows that no, the no, argument. No, no. Excuse me. Excuse me. I said it wrong. Okay. Um, 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 an argument that leads you that 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 leads you to a conclusion that contradicts one of the premises is is widely viewed to be defective. Okay, in science. Okay, sure. But, but um, so it can't be illogical in that sense. Okay, okay but I mean, you can't endorse P and not P. Okay. Okay. I mean, so setting but, aside, yeah. But but I but but you you say you, you started by saying it's too weak. Of course, it's too weak. Whoever denied that? What I mean? Why is does that, that mean it's a bad? You you started out before that by saying it's a terrible idea. Okay, and we said why, and you said it's very weak. Okay, and I don't understand how this observation that it's very weak, which everybody agrees with, is uh, it, it somehow means that it's a bad idea. What I mean is there are there are domains where logic, not inductive methodology that goes beyond logic, yeah, is supposed to call the shots. One of those domains, for example, is when we evaluate typical philosophical arguments. Like, is the argument valid? We ask, like, is Anselm's argument for God valid? And sure. that is a bad way, in my view, to, right. to figure out whether the conclusion is true. I mean, that's a ridiculously high standard that we shouldn't care about. Um, there's also all these other issues which we've, you know, ignored because we have no time. I don't but, think there's, but I, I, you're presenting this as if it's controversial in a way that it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as being. But look, and also in the just in the mathematical case, right? Okay? And once again. I, you know, I'm I'm the person in this conversation dramatically least competent to to discuss the success or failure of various logicist programs or yeah, something yeah. like this. But this observation that that mathematicians make a face when you present when you present them with a version of their proof in first order logic. Um, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to draw from this observation, which I've no doubt is true, that they make a face. Are you saying that I shouldn't find it interesting whether it could be represented completely in first order logic? It does seem to me an interesting question. That's, so, what, that's what the whole logicist program hinges on, I take. Well, well, I mean, I don't think... But uh, Ju uh, Justin, yeah. David, I mean, if you want to go, I don't want to... I, I, I'll, I'll stick around one minute to hear the answer. Okay, okay, okay. And I got to go. Well, I mean, so the Logis program can't be about first-order logic just because you you, you can't do anything. Too, okay, good. Yeah, but but, good. but but right, if you instead think that kind of the grain of truth in the vicinity is something like this... If a mathematician claims to prove something, it only is a valid proof if you could, in principle, write down perfectly formal versions of the axioms, yeah. of the inference system, and and derive with finitely many steps the last right. conclusion of which is the formal statement of the claim. Right. That I think is an interesting policy position. Okay. But it's only a policy position in the sense that no, no, no. But suppose I were to construe it not as a policy position. I don't know as what a question. 
to, um, I'll tell you. Um, um, somebody becomes curious. Right. As I imagine the logicists were, okay, somebody mm -hmm. says, I wonder if it's true that every mathematical proof that is accepted as such could in principle be rewritten in this form. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, um, you, you think that's for some reason an uninteresting question? No, I don't, I don't think it's an interesting question. I don't, I don't see why it's a particularly profound question, given that the specific system you'll choose is just one among, uh, I mean, you could also ask. No, so now, wait, 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 you promised to keep pluralism. No, I, you're, I only promised earlier. And this, <laughs> this is a different question about the interestingness of the, yeah, of, of the can you rewrite it in formal yeah. terms, and and I think that that's where the pluralism issue comes in, and that's where it becomes just a policy question of like what should be the standards of of correct proof in principle. Okay, so I'm I'm beginning to get the hang of this. Um, good, thank you, um, <laughs> um, and uh, and thank you for letting me yell at you, uh, and and David, so on. I I love being yelled at by <laughs> And thank you both for and I'm joining sorry, me on I'm this sorry episode to be of Justin's out. podcast. I'm sorry to be bailing out, but I, just did, kidding, just I did warn you. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know what, if you want to, you know, if you wanted to get into other topics or you want to continue this sometime, you wanted to ask about time and stuff like that, um, I, I'm certainly happy to. And I'd love okay, to great. have Justin. The, Justin Good. Cool. Thanks, okay. everybody. This is okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye, David. Bye. I have recorded this about 10 times because I'm just so bad at asking for help, but if you could like, subscribe, comment on whatever medium you're consuming this nascent fledgling podcast on, that would be so helpful because the best thing for helping me grow this podcast at this point is making it at least appear that I have an audience. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me.